there really is no highest calling in terms of a vocation. I think it's wrong-headed for us to say that, well, there are preachers up here, and they're the most special. Sorry, Keith. And then there's everybody else right down here. We have different gifts and talents and abilities that God has given us, and God uses each one in the world and in the church and across the world to accomplish His purposes. And believers ought to be involved in every single one of them to the degree, like Brother Keith mentioned uh, last night, that it's not sinful. There are some jobs that are just inherently sinful, right? You can't be a Christian drug dealer, right? Unless it's prescription drugs, all right? And, uh, and so there's some good things to do with, with, with uh, the medicines that God has given us. But if you're out pushing dope on the street, that's not a Christian job. There's no virtue in that. And so believers need to be involved in life and work, right? Fruitful life and work in every vocation. And if you miss everything else this weekend, don't miss this. Listen, there, so your ministry doesn't start on Sunday morning and end on Sunday at lunchtime. You don't work all week so that you can then minister on Sunday, okay? God has called you to your employer and to your employees to do what you can do through your gifts and your talents and your abilities and placing you in that spot. Man, whether it's building fences or whether it's being the justice of the peace or being a school counselor or whatever it is, you're reaching people with your example that I can't reach and that nobody else in here can reach. And God's going to open doors for you to share the gospel. We're going to share, we were going to share a video. We have some technical problems and it probably isn't going to happen this morning, but I was going to let you watch it. It's from the Institute of Faith, Work, and Economics. If you have a place to write notes down, you'll want to go to tifwe.org, T-I-F-W-E.org, the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. And on their homepage is a little introductory video that talks exactly, I think you showed it once, Michael, right? On Sunday morning a couple weeks ago. And so go back, and they have other stuff too. Um, but what I did was I extracted the, the, the words, and even after we were going to show the video, I was going to reread the words. So let me read to you now the narration that goes with that video. Here's what it says. Our lives are not divided into two halves, with one part being sacred and another part secular. Worship is not reserved only for Sunday morning, but for Monday morning as well. Every time we get out of bed and ready ourselves for the day, Every time we labor at a task, no matter how insignificant it may seem, every moment is a gift. And I'm, I'm going to stop here. There's a little bit more I'll read in just a moment. As they're, as they're showing this, as they're reading this, there are images of people doing all these different jobs. There's a lady making a cappuccino. There's a guy that's, you know, doing woodworking. There's somebody who's working in the back of a restaurant. I mean, and those are the kind of jobs that most of us do most of the time. And if we have it in our minds that, well, I just got to put up with this until I can go do ministry on Sunday morning or go on a ministry trip on the summertime or, you know, no, I, I, must, I just have to do my job so I can make money, so I can give ministry money in the offering plate. Listen, you're missing a huge part of God's calling and pleasure on your life. He wants you to enjoy the ministry that He's called you to. Here's what it says. 
Um, there's, there's a way that leads a man to flourish. It's freedom, the freedom to discover his true potential, to keep the fruits of his labor, to find fulfillment in his work. These freedoms are the right of every person because they come woven into the God-given dignity of every person. Where they exist, societies and people flourish. Where they're absent, there's only poverty, right? Where there's, here's the point, where there's no freedom and where there's no private property, there's poverty. I mean, look at any country you want to and, you, and you'll see that. Where they are absent, there is only poverty. These freedoms must be championed for this is God's design for us for the good of all He has created. It's a really good video. I encourage you to watch it. As I'm looking through and I'm listening to it, I'm watching that and I'm reading this, there are two things that jump out at me, freedom and private property. Now, there are some things that are implied maybe in here or in other stuff that TIFWE does and that other organizations, um, there's a group called the Acton Institute, there's uh, you know, the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics, there's a thing called the Oikonomia Network, uh, the Karam Forum, all of these things. And there's a whole movement in evangelical theology and, and ministry today called the Faith and Work Movement. In fact, there's a whole Faith and Work Summit that's being held in Dallas towards the end of October. You can look that up as well. But a couple of things that are, that are missing in here, and you can't put everything into one video or one paragraph, freedom is great, private property is great, but if all I have is freedom and private property without virtue, it's going to be a mess. I need virtue. Freedom without virtue is a disaster. That's why as we raise our children and they become more and more free because they're older and they have more money and, and maybe some time and a car, as our children grow and become more free, we hope and pray, dear God, let them be more virtuous. And, that's, and so, unfortunately, we have that in, in our culture today. We have some freedoms, but the virtue has gone down the drain, okay? It just has. And we need not just a free society, but a, but a virtuous society as well. So we need God to infiltrate our lives as individuals, as families, as a society, and help us to cultivate a free society and a virtuous society and a society that it respects the rule of law and respects private property. And when that happens, a society can flourish and people are lifted out of poverty. Now, I want to be careful here because here's what I don't want to do. This whole faith and work movement has a couple of dangers to it. And one of the dangers is we can become, if we're not careful, advocates of what's called the social gospel, where all we do is try to help people not be poor and give them clean drinking water and food to eat and jobs to have. Guess what? They're going to die and go to hell full of food, full of water, and having had a good job. So we can't just do that. We can't fall into this trap of going... Well, we've done everything for everybody we can do, and no, we have to somehow use that as a platform to share the gospel. We could, we could fall into the trap, and you say, oh, this is impossible. How many of you, well, I won't take a, a poll, but 
some of you read theology, some of you read like theology textbooks, and you understand the difference between premillennialism and postmillennialism and amillennialism and all these isms. There's a movement in eschatological studies, the study of end times, called postmillennialism. It's this belief that things are going to get better and better until Jesus returns and we're going to usher in the kingdom of God. It's the opposite. Things are going to get worse and worse until Christ returns. And, it's, and, and I still have a responsibility to do what I can to make things better in my sphere of influence, but I don't want to fall into the trap of, hey, I'm going to work my job, and I'm going to have great employees, and I'm going to be a great employer, and I'm going to make money, and I'm going to respect the rule of law and be virtuous and have private property and create that kind of a society so that I can make things better and better until Jesus comes back. I want to make things as good as they can be, but I've read my Bible. It doesn't get better. It gets progressively worse until Christ returns and establishes his kingdom. So I don't want to fall into the trap of the social gospel or post-millennialism. Here's another trap we can fall into, the health and wealth gospel. Well, God wants every believer to be healthy and wealthy. Right? We just don't have money because we don't have enough faith. Just faith it. Faith it till you make it. Right? No, that's from hell. Read Hebrews 11. Oh, women received back their dead by resurrection. They, they flourished. They put foreign armies to flight. They did all of these wonderful things by faith. And then what does it say? And they were stoned. And they were sawn in two. And they went about destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy. And God had prepared something better for, for them and for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. They knew that they were pilgrims passing through. Some of them were blessed in their faith. Some of them were not as blessed physically in their faith. It's not God's will that every believer be healthy and wealthy all the time throughout their whole life. Sometimes he brings things or allows things into our lives where we have a little bit of an up and down, right? throughout our lives. So I don't want to get caught in a health and wealth gospel or a social gospel or post-millennialism. And similar to the social gospel, I don't want to get caught in what's called liberation theology. There was a movement a few generations ago in South America and other parts of the world where uh, good theology was just sort of freeing people from oppression, right? Uh, making sure that they weren't under a dictator anymore. And somehow that was salvation. It's wonderful to bring people out from under dictators, right? And to help them set up their society in such a way that it's not tyrannical. That's great, but that's not the gospel, right? That's the liberation theology gospel. So there are all these traps that we can fall into if we're not careful. We need to be very careful about that. My points today, and I would with, with uh, Brother Keith say this, apologize for not bringing you an expository sermon. He said we can do it once a year and then, and then apologize for it. I'll apologize for mine ahead of time and say that I do the same thing. I preach through books of the Bible. In fact, I just finished Ephesians out there in Alvord, and uh, we're in the book of Acts now. And so, but, but today, I want to see what various scriptures say about the topic we're going to talk about. And here it is. Here's my outline. Number one, God is a worker. God works. Number two, we were created in his image and we ought to be workers. Number three, he's commanded us to work. Number four, our work is helpful for fulfilling the Great Commission 
and for helping the poor. So God is a worker. We're created in his image, and so we ought to be workers. He's commanded us to work. Our work is helpful. And then just a little bit of application, because at 1030 today, I'll be back in here, and if you signed up for for the, uh, the one at 10.30 with me, then we'll talk about some very specific applications of how to apply what we've talked about. But first, God is a worker. Look at Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, if you have your Bibles. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 1. The heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day, verse 2, Genesis 2-2, God completed his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day, what? From all his work. The same word that's used, uh, that's translated into our English word work, is the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 39, verse 11. When Joseph, the son of Jacob, who was sold into slavery, is used about him when he was working in Potiphar's house. It's the same word in 1 Kings 7, verses 13 and 14, which says, Now King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. He was a widow's son from the tribe of Naphtali. And his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze. And he was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill for doing any work in bronze. So he came to King Solomon and performed all his work. Hiram was laboring, working with his hands. Now God, there's a difference between God and us. God doesn't have hands. God is spirit, right? But he works in a, in a very similar sense to how we work. It's the same word used in 2 Chronicles 16.5 when someone named Basha was fortifying the city of Ramah in the northern kingdom of Israel. They were working to do that. It's the same word in Nehemiah 4.15 with the work of rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. God is a worker. In Genesis 2, he rests from his work. And again, it's different from us. He doesn't literally need rest because he's tired. So there's a difference. But he does do work. John Piper, who... uh, He says this about um, God's work. Now, these, these are not the same Hebrew word, but it's the idea that God works. He says God works, and we see it all throughout Scripture. In, uh, in, in Psalm 55, 22, the Lord will sustain you. He works in, in the fact that He sustains you. In Isaiah 64, 4, from the days of old, they have not heard or perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen a God besides you who acts on behalf of the one who waits for Him. God acts. He works for you and me. Acts 17, 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. He's giving to us right now. He's working to give to us life and breath and all things. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth to show himself strong for those who trust him. He shows himself strong. He's working to work on your behalf. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Call on me. I will deliver you. Psalm 50, verse 15, he delivers us. Even to your old age, I will be the same. And even to your graying years, I will bear you. This is from Isaiah 46, 4. He says, I will bear you. I have done it. I will carry you. I will bear you and I will deliver you. 
to old age, I will carry you. I have made and I will, I will bear, I will carry and save. He's, he, all these things he's doing for us on a regular, constant basis. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, But by the grace of God, Paul says, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. He says, I labored. Paul says, I labored, but it really wasn't me. It was God working. God is a worker. Unless the Lord builds the house, Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Right? We can work. But if God's not working on our behalf, and He does work on our behalf, then it's vanity. Work out your own salvation, Philippians 2, for it is God who works in you. God does His work in you. 1 Corinthians 3, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. God works to create growth in us and in our churches and then he is before all things, Colossians 1.17, in him all things hold together. It's as if God is constantly creating or, or somehow sustaining the universe. If God were to cease to exist, everything, no, nothing would exist. He holds it all together. Now, now, he can't do that. He can't just stop existing. He's God. It's in his nature. He's self-existent. He's the uncaused cause, right, as Aristotle would say. He's the unmoved mover. A lot of Christian theologians picked up on these ancient philosophers, and they went, yeah, they got a little bit right. God's always existed. God sustains everything. God is a worker. So God is a worker, and we also ought to be workers. Look at this. We are created, number two, we are created in God's image and ought to work. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, you go back there in your Bible, Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle, over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. We should stop right there and just fall down and worship God. This is amazing. God made us a little bit like him. We, he made us in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and what? Subdue it. I've talked to people before who, you know, I, if I could afford organic food, I would eat it. Let me just tell you. I, you know, it just seems like it would taste better, you know? It seems like it would be healthier. Now, there's all kinds of studies that show it's not or that it is, or, you know, people have disagree and agree about all that. So I like to, you know, if it says organic and it comes in a really cool green package, right, I, I like it. Uh, wow, this was, this was grown in local farms and local, you know. I go to a restaurant near the Crystal College, um, can't remember the name of it, but they have a garden out back where they get their herbs and they sprinkle it all over, all over their food. It's good stuff. But sometimes the same people who are really into that are into sort of just letting everything sort of just go, right? And I'm just telling you my experience with people that I've met. And they say, oh, no, no, don't, don't cut the branch off that tree. Leave it natural. No, no, don't put a fence up. Just let the, let the stuff grow, right? No, no, don't pull the weeds. Right? The, the, the weeds are just another plant. 
No, the, the weeds have to be subdued. <laughs> when I pull weeds out of my garden, I'm subduing the earth. I'm doing what God said here. Fill the earth and subdue it. When we put up a fence and say to our livestock, you can't go any farther. I'm ruling over the livestock. It's good for us to trim back the poison ivy, to pull up the weeds, to put up a fence, to plow the ground, to fertilize it, and to make it produce something better and different. God set it up in a natural state, and he said, now fix it. Make it even better. Now, he did say it was good, and it was very good, but part of the good and very good was us having the mandate to subdue it. So put up a fence, pull your weeds, mow your grass, trim your trees, put, you know, keep the livestock where it needs to be. And, 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 and when we do that, it's us being created in God's image. It says he created a man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every living thing that moves on the earth. So it's a very delicate balance for believers. It's a very delicate balance for how should we be environmentally friendly? How should we make sure we take care of the earth but not fall into the trap that the earth is more important than us? We're the height of creation. God made us as rulers not to dominate but to have dominion. There's a difference, right? Domination is more like I'm going to do whatever I want, whenever I want, I'm going to tear it up and exploit it. And dominion and subjugation just says, no, no, I'm going to take it and I'm going to improve it and improve it and improve it. And there are ways to do that and there are ways not to do that. And we need to be very smart and very wise and prayerful about how we do those things. We're created in His image and He created us in His image to work. He's commanded us, number three, He's commanded us to work. Again, Genesis 1, 26 through 28, He commands them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. You could go to the Mosaic Law in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you could see command after command after command about fences and crops and animals and arts and crafts and tabernacle and temple and what we might call secular work and sacred work, right? Work outside of the temple, work inside of the temple. Although it might be good for us to begin to do away with that secular sacred divide and see all of life as sacred. There's a Dutch theologian named Abraham Kuyper, K-U-Y-P-E-R. Abraham Kuyper is most famous for this phrase, and you've, if you know anything about Kuyper, you've heard this. There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, doesn't cry, mine. There's not one square inch in all of, all of creation over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, doesn't cry, this is mine. The homeschool classroom is mine. Chick-fil-A is mine. First Baptist Keller is mine. That garden behind the, uh, gar it's, it's called the Garden Cafe. Hey, there you have, I remember the, remember the name of it, Garden Cafe. It's on Junior Street. Check it out. It's really good stuff. People don't acknowledge God there very much, but it's his restaurant, and it's his garden out back, and it's his little chickens that are wandering around, 
when I was privileged to go out to Philmont and uh, hike for two weeks with my son Micah, uh, backpacking across the mountains of New Mexico, um, all those trails, I say, well, Wade Phillips, his name is Wade, not Wade, Wade, Wade Phillips gave all this land out there in, in Philmont, and now it belongs to who? To BSA, Boy Scouts of America. No, it doesn't. It belongs to God. Those Rocky Mountains are God's. That moon up in the sky you saw last night is God's. The rain, it's God's. All of it is His. And He has commanded us to work in all of these different areas. In 1 Thessalonians 2.9, Paul says, I was working night and day so I wouldn't be a burden to any of you. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 12, let's turn there. 1 Thessalonians 4. This is some of the stuff, Michael, that we talked about at the Men's Summit last year. 1 Thessalonians 4, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul had a lot to say to the Thessalonians about working. Finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus, this is not just from him, this is from God, that as you, as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. You know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. This is the will of God, your sanctification. You abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you that God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Verse 8, 1 Thessalonians 4, 8. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now as to, and so Keith mentioned it last night, this comes right on the heels of sexual purity and treating each other in the right way. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you... You do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia, but we urge you, brother, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. God has commanded us to work. In, in Colossians 3.10, it says, you've put on the new self according to the image of the one uh, who, who created him. We're, we're created in God's image, and then he commands us to work. He says in 2 Thessalonians, just one, one or two pages over, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We didn't act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so we would not be a burden to any of you, not because we don't have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you. You work hard, you work smart, so that somebody else doesn't have to pay your way. This is not to say that you don't need stuff sometimes. Sometimes you get in a tight spot or somebody has, is, is so uh, down and out that they need something. 
And that's when we work hard so that we can share with that other person. So that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. God is a worker. We're created in His image, and we ought to... We ought to follow that example. He's commanded us to work. And then our work, and I'm almost finished, our work is f- helpful. It's fruitful for the Great Commission and for Jesus' admonition that we try to help the poor. Our work is helpful for fulfilling the Great Commission. What? Really? So when I go to work every day and you know, work on an assembly line or sweep up the floor or make chicken or whatever I do... That's helping fulfill the Great Commission? Absolutely. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy 2. Chapter chapter 2 and verse 1. I've shared this passage with you in, in past talks, but it has a specific application to what we're talking about today. First of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead, this is the same language he used back in the, in the passage I read a minute ago from uh, 2 Thessalonians, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. You say, well, that's the goal, just that we would be tranquil and quiet and godly and dignified? No, that's not the end goal. Keep reading. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who what? Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The work that we do under the rule of law with virtue and freedom and private property creates a society that's quiet, that can be godly and dignified and tranquil. And in that society, the gospel can go forth freely, unhindered. Sitting on the assembly line, working at Chick-fil-A, being a school counselor, homeschooling, public school, private schooling your kids, building roads, doing what my dad did for 40 years at Cincinnati Bell. He was a switchman. He was called a troubleshooter, right? They'd have problems, he'd fix the wires. Doing what my mother did for 30 years, working for a federal bankruptcy judge. All of these things, we do them virtuously in a free society, under the rule of law, where we're able to keep the fruits of our labor, creates a tranquil, quiet, godly, dignified society, not for that end, but so that the gospel can go forth freely. That's what God has called us to. It's great that we have pastors and preachers and people who, who staff members who work here in the church or people like me who train others to work in churches and do other sorts of Christian ministry. But we're no better or no worse than anyone else. You're calling, doing what you do that maybe nobody knows about is equally important. And when you do it with virtue and godliness and dignity, it creates a society in which people can flourish, the poor can rise out of poverty, and the gospel can go forth freely. It doesn't have to be either preach the gospel or help the poor. 
either lead people to Christ or help to produce a good society. It can and should be both. Father, help us to know our part in what you want us to do to subdue the earth, to improve it in ways that we're able to do until Jesus returns. We know that things are going to go from bad to worse, but we know that in our little pocket of the corner of the world, we can produce good results. So help us with that. We need your help, and we need your wisdom to know how to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.